point. And there's nothing in the text that says anything about Jesus' attitude toward them when they made this request. And I think the reason why people think that Jesus was annoyed is because, you know, it is the third time that Jesus has predicted his death. And we see the disciples as like, oh, come on, guys, like you should be getting it by now, what Jesus came to do. And yet, have you considered your own self? (laughs) You know, we're thinking, get a clue. And yet Jesus, our long-suffering Lord, knew their frame. He was acquainted with their ways, and he was patient with them, and, and He knew what they would eventually become, and he knew that they weren't what he was going to make them, that they were still his disciples, and yet they would become apostles. And so Jesus, being long-suffering with them, receives this request that they're about to make, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And so verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. So what were James and John asking Jesus to do? They were asking Jesus to sit in these prominent positions, to sit at his right hand and his left hand. That is to say, Jesus, we know that you are going to sit on a throne and that you are going to be a king. And, and, and there is a seat on the right hand of that throne, and that's for your right hand guy. And there is a seat on the left hand of your throne, and that's for your left hand guy, your third in command, can we have those seats, Jesus? Can we sit with you in your glory? We want to be your right-hand guy and your left-hand guy. However, this was to misunderstand the kingship of Jesus. The disciples are still thinking that as the Messiah, that Jesus would come in and that he would establish his rightful reign as king of the Jews, the son of David, that he'd come in and he'd overthrow the oppressive Roman government and he'd set up his kingdom upon the earth. Yeah, no, that's, that's not what Jesus came to do. You know, this is what James and John were thinking, that they were going to sit in glorious splendor with Christ and that Jesus, James, and John would defeat the Romans And Jesus and James and John would defeat the Herodians. And Jesus, James, and John would transform the religious landscape of that time. And that this trifecta of glory of Jesus, James, and John would be unstoppable. Like, that's literally what they're thinking. But Jesus had a different mission. And Jesus would set up a throne. However, it would not be an earthly throne. It would be a heavenly throne. And he was going to hang upon a cross first. Before there would be any sitting down in victory, there would be suffering. And look, there would be two people beside Jesus in this path to the throne of God. There would be one on his right hand and one on his left hand. However, they would be condemned criminals as Jesus hung on a cross with two crucified thieves to his right and to his left. And Jesus is saying to them, guys, where I'm going, I don't think you want to go. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to the cross. I don't think you want to sit at my right hand and my left hand. In verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? 
This is where Jesus begins to explain more of what he would suffer in order to be the king of kings. And what they had in mind for sitting in glory would not be achieved without the necessary suffering that Christ would have to endure to set up his eternal kingdom. And he said, guys, you don't get it right now. You don't know what you're asking for. You know, here's a, here's a side note really fast before we get into what this cup to drink is and this baptism is. Here's a little side note, which is that as Christians, we should be very mindful of what we ask of God. You know, I don't, I don't say that for us to be hesitant to approach God, to ask him for anything, to make your request before God. But listen, if you really knew what it was that you were asking for and what the result would be, we might have second thoughts on some of the things we ask for. Because pretty much anything that you ask of God that is truly part of his kingdom will require at least some degree of sacrifice on your part. And so if you're going to come to God and you're going to ask God for something in your life, maybe it's to be um, a great husband, a great father, a great leader. Uh, I mean, anything you ask of God that is good, it's going to require at least some degree of sacrifice. So understand that when you ask God for things. But he says to them in verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And this cup that Jesus was speaking of, it, the cup was a common Hebrew expression at that time. And to receive a cup meant that you were going to receive into yourself whatever that cup contained. And what this is referencing back to is that the prophet Jeremiah spoke about this cup that God had. And in that cup, it was this strong mixture of a drink. And it was representative of the wrath of God towards sin and that he was going to make the nations drink it. That God held this cup, and it was the wrath of God toward disobedience. And then we know that Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night of his betrayal, trembled before this cup. Jesus prayed in agony in that garden, and he, he was sweating what were like great drops of blood as he trembled before this cup, saying, God, if there is any other way to accomplish salvation, that if I do not have to drink of this cup, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And we know that Jesus willfully submitted to the plan of the Father for the salvation of sinners, and that the will of the Father was this, you guys, is that the Father would have the Son, his only begotten drink that entire cup of wrath because this cup that the father presented to the son was filled with the the holy wrath against our sins the full measure of suffering that was owed to us as sinners we deserved to drink that cup because we are the ones that have rebelled against the god of heaven and earth and yet christ received that cup to himself, meaning that he assumed our place in God's justice. That, that he answered for our disobedience in his own body, and he endured the holy wrath of God towards sin by drinking that cup. And listen, he drank every last 
drop of it so that God's children would never have to taste the wrath of God towards sin. Can I get an amen for that? Jesus received this cup so that you and I would never have to taste it. You know the cup that Jesus gives you instead? He gives you the cup that overflows with joy. And the other question that is asked in verse 38 by Jesus to picture what Christ would do is he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And we know that a baptism is a submersion into water. And Jesus spoke about how we would be baptized into death, that that death would overwhelm Jesus and, and that it would be as if, you know, a, a wave of the sea overwhelms whatever it's in its path. And we saw a few Sundays ago, 20 people come forward to be baptized. It was a beautiful Sunday. I mean, I'm still relishing in it. And what did we witness? We witnessed people being dunked into death. We witnessed those who were baptized saying, I'm no longer going to live for myself. But the life that I now live, I'm going to live by faith in the Son of God because I've been purchased at a price. And now, now because I've died with Christ, I'm going to walk in the newness of life found in Christ. And just as Jesus didn't remain in the grave, no one stayed in that water. There's no inflatable hot tub up here anymore. They're out of that water and walking in the newness of life in the same way, you know, there's this baptism that we're baptized into with Christ. And what it means is that we die with Christ, and if we've died with Christ, we're also risen with him. And Jesus said to them, he said, guys, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And he said to them, verse 39, they said to him, we are able. Don't you love that answer? Oh, yeah, sure. I could do that. Again, they probably don't fully realize what they're agreeing to. And yet they affirm this call of Jesus. And look, I, I applaud the loyalty of the disciples. I love that they really do see Jesus as their king. They really do believe that he will reign in glory and they want to be with him in that. that that's good. But it's going to take a little bit more time for them to fully realize all that this entails of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And, and I was just talking to Ben Kai before the service. It's like we are right in the thick of discipleship in the Gospel of Mark. And if you haven't learned by now as we've been looking at discipleship over these last couple of weeks, this is what Jesus is calling us into. He's saying, come to me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. When Jesus calls the person into discipleship, he is bidding them to come and die so that you could walk in resurrection life and walk in the eternal life offered to God. And so verse 39 through 40, Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Sorry, guys, going to adjust that really fast. And, um, you know, Jesus said to them, you will, you will experience this. And, and it's true. Jesus' words were fulfilled here. James was the first apostle to be martyred. He was killed by King Herod with a sword in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. 
And John, the other brother here, was the only apostle who, according to tradition, was not martyred. He died of old age. However, he died in lonely exile as he was, um, as he was um, yeah, basically imprisoned for his faith. At one point, John was boiled in a vat of oil. Didn't kill him, but he was certainly persecuted for his faith. And Jesus said this to James and John not having a clue as to what they would soon face as apostles. But the fact is, guys, that, I mean, it's according to tradition, but pretty reliable that um, every apostle, except for John, died a martyr's death. That ought to tell you something about the power of the resurrection, that these men could be faithful unto death, that they could die because of this truth. Who dies for a lie? No one dies for a lie. They could not shake from their bones the reality of the resurrection and who Jesus is. And they truly did become men who are willing to drink whatever cup was offered. Peter, according to tradition, couldn't die the same death as his Lord, and so they crucified him upside down, is what they say. And, and so the Lord would allow for his disciples to experience um, this same suffering that he endured. And check this out. After James and John made their request, look at how in verse 41, the other disciples were pretty mad about it. It says, when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Right? We know the disciples had this ongoing argument about who was the greatest. And here they've got this competition that's just like peaking. They're, they're really getting frustrated with one another. And, and the 10 are getting really angry. But why are they so angry at James and John? I think the reason they're angry is not because James and John, you know, made some ambitious request of Jesus. And they're like, don't you know that our Lord's going to suffer? It's, no, they're, they're angry because James and John beat him to the punch. They wanted to sit at the right hand and at the left hand. They wanted to, you know, in glory and in the kingdom, look all the way down at the five over there and all the way down at the five over there and say, look who's sitting at the right hand and the left hand, you know. And it's funny because here's the thing, the 10 are angry at James and John, but how funny it is that when we see our own sin on other people, we're so quick to go on about how ugly it looks on them without first addressing it in our own hearts. They all suffered from the same issue of pride. And they were just getting angry with one another as they saw the pride in each other's hearts. And now all of this in this story is not meant to fault the disciples for making this request because this boldness and this confidence to ask Jesus, in fact, I would say that, that, that sometimes it's good to be ambitious for spiritual life with Christ. In fact, don't you know that Jesus promised that his disciples would sit with him at his throne? Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They know where they're going. They know the promise of Jesus. So it's not so ambitious to make that request and however, they were looking at it entirely wrong. And even though this request had already been promised, what they were doing is in their pride, they were looking to climb the ladder of success, to find that prominent position. And they were willing to climb upon the necks of the other disciples to get there. 
And, and that is really the reality of, of the spiritual pride that exists all around us. Guys, that exists in my own heart. I'm keenly aware of how easily spiritual pride, pride can creep into my life. Because, listen, the killers of spiritual authority are pride in comparison. And that's exactly what the disciples were doing. James and John had this mindset that spiritual authority meant this, outdo everyone else. As long as you're more active than other people, you're spiritual. As long as you're more outspoken than other people, you're spiritual. As long as you get your request in ahead of others, that's authority. And they were more spiritual than the rest in their minds because they were using whatever means that they could to try to gain that seat of position. Even if it meant bringing their mom into it, you know. And, and Jesus said, the places on my right hand and my left hand, they're not mine to give. So beautiful that even Jesus was an example of submission to the Father's will, that the Father would grant those places. And so we don't even know who's going to sit at the right hand at the left hand of Jesus. But what I love about that is when we do find out, it's probably going to be so different from what we ever imagined it to be. Now, after all of this, Jesus gathers the disciples in and sits them down for a great lesson on what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. Today's message, guys, is about what does it mean to be great in the kingdom of God. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servants, and whoever will be first among you must be a slave of all. So Jesus calls them to himself, you know, and I take a lot of comfort in that. I've seen that repeatedly throughout Mark's gospel because what I love is that when Jesus calls us to himself, it is Jesus that we're being called to, to be instructed and corrected. And, and we know that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So he gathers them to himself and he's, he's not annoyed, I don't think. I don't think he's frustrated. He's not going to scold them, but he's going to lovingly and patiently teach them a better way. That's what Jesus always does is he takes his disciples, he says, come here, come to me, let me teach you a better way. The best way, the kingdom way. And he brings to their minds how the Gentile rules, rulers rule. And, and that, you know, nothing's new today of how people lead and rule in our world. The Gentiles would dominate over the people that were under them. They would dangle power over people's heads. The goal was to make it to the top, and knock down anyone who stood in the way of you getting to the top. And the goal was to keep that prominent position and keep everyone down below you so that they could serve your kingdom. Jesus says, oh, no, 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 this is not how it will be among you. This is not how my children will operate. Christians will look different. Christians are going to be marked by service. And, and too many Christians are living today with this attitude of doing as little as possible to get as much as possible. But what if Christians lived in such a way that we were putting more into life than we were taking out? 
Could you imagine what our businesses would look like, what our marriages would look like, what our children would look like if we lived with this sacrificial service, what our churches would look like, what the world around us would look like if we lived when Jesus said, whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant. Whoever desires to be first, let him be a slave of all. If we want to see greatness in our lives, we want to see greatness in our world, we need to understand these two paradoxical ways of Jesus that do not make any sense if you're operating in your sin nature. They will not make sense if you're living for yourself and you're living for this world. But if by the Spirit of God, you are operating for something outside of yourself, outside of this world, then becoming a servant, becoming a slave of all will make sense. You see, God's kingdom is an entirely different economy and we would learn well, learn um, to do well if, if we live that way because our flesh is always gonna go for what's obvious and what's natural. Work your way to the top, hierarchy, climb, achieve, do whatever it takes, even if it means damaging relationships along the way. But this is not what we learn from Jesus. What do we learn from Jesus? Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, something to be grabbed at. But he humbled himself taking on the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of, as a man, he, he humbled himself, became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that humility, because of that mind of Christ, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Humility is the only path to true exaltation in the kingdom of God. You will not find greatness in the kingdom through your flesh, through the systems of this world. Completely different. And learning this proper mindset of a believer, being a humble servant, just as Jesus was. Because when Jesus came, he came to serve. And if Jesus came in that way, and he suffered in the way that he suffered, and that's how our master suffered, what, why, why should we expect anything different as his servant? And so Jesus finishes up right here getting their minds off of themselves and back onto the sacrificial work of Jesus. That's what we're always going to do. I know that this message has been a lot of self-examination. I at least hope that. A lot of examination. Am I a servant? Yeah. I, ooh, I don't know. That's convicting. Am I a servant? Okay. We can all serve greater. Amen? I don't stand here today saying that I've got this all dialed. I understand that the greater the sacrifice, the greater the glory. I can always go lower, lower still, because Christ went the lowest. And so 
Examine your life, sure, but get your eyes on Jesus. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And Ben Kai's going to come back to this verse in a moment for communion. It is the, it's the centerpiece of this, of this teaching. It all comes back to Jesus. It's his way. He is the example. He is the savior. He is everything. He is the servant of all. Look to him. And that's what we're going to do in communion. But before we do, and I'm going to close right now by reading this last portion of Bartimaeus, this blind man that gets healed. And then we'll close by contrasting Bartimaeus and how he responded to Jesus and how James and John were responding. So a couple more minutes here and we'll close. Verse 46 to 52, they came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I love this. Mark is so strategic, I believe, to tell this story immediately after Jesus is teaching on what it means to be a servant of all. Because I see it as a contrast. James and John were asking in their pride to sit on the throne of the son of David. Where Bartimaeus humbly asked, the son of David, to have mercy on him. James and John asked Jesus to do for them whatever they asked of him. Jesus asked the blind beggar what, he, what it was that he wanted Jesus to do for him. They both called Jesus teacher, but only one really understood the teaching of Jesus about being a humble servant. So the plain teaching of scripture is that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And the way of Jesus will always be counter. Greatness is found in being a servant of all. The way up is down. The highest position is found in the lowest position. First place is last place. Life is obtained by death. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so as we end, I think about all this and I think, man, oh man, did Jesus come to serve us. He came to die upon a cross, the greatest act of service that anyone will ever witness, that anyone can ever know because the issue was is that we were dead in our trespasses. The debt hung over our head and everything was stacked against us. But Jesus came and he laid down our life and laid down his life so that he could pick ours up. And as Ben Kai encourages us through communion in just a moment, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And as you do, I believe you're going to become the type of servant 
that I know that you know that you want to be. You know, 95% of being a servant of Christ is just surrendering all. Full surrender. Like, maybe way more. 99% is full surrender. The last 1% is, okay, then how am I called and gifted? And how can God use me to serve? We're all called to serve. And it'll all look different. It'll all look various. And yet, we are all called to serve. And Jesus is calling you to come to him today. He called Bartimaeus. He said, call him. And they came to him and said, get up. The teacher's calling you. Like, come. He's asking for you. And I'll tell you today, I give you the same call. Jesus is calling you right now. He's saying, come to me. Call him. You, you've heard what the call is. Come, follow me, die to self, and live. He's calling you. And if you hear his call, and you want to come to Jesus, and you want to have that eternal life, and you want to have that life that you were always meant to live, then like Bartimaeus, spring up. And come to Jesus. Just get up from where you are, wherever you are. Bring all of yourself, bring the real you to the real Jesus, and he'll receive you. It's the best journey you'll ever take. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. As we continue now in worship and as we receive a communion today, God, we ask, Lord, that you would get our eyes upon you, Jesus. We will always be greater servants as we see you as our example. But thank you, Jesus, that you're more than an example. You're a savior. Because what we could never do for ourselves, you did. You died for sin so that we could have life. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.